Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, July 17th, 2022, we continue our new four-part series titled, Share. Today's sermon, The Spiritual Battle, will be taught to us by Pastor Joe and Franco. Enjoy. I actually grew up in the church. Um, My dad is a retired minister, but I didn't grow up believing. Um, And in 2016, I actually started seeking. I ended up in the New Age. One way to look at it is it's kind of a choose your own religion. So you pick and choose from all the world religions and you just kind of build based off of what feels true to you. And then in 2020, in the the very beginning of 2021, I was actually saved through reading the word. I've had the opportunity to share with multiple people. Um, I've had an online presence since 2014. So it first started with just my vulnerability of first sharing my new age experience. And then when I came to faith, I started sharing about being able to see through the lies and the deceit of the new age. Um, I was really just sharing what I had learned because a lot of the questions that they had, I had the same questions. I wondered if the Bible was true. I wondered if it was accurate. Um, I had a lot of the same objections to it. And so I just honestly shared with them the same questions I had, what I had found, and what I was learning along the process. And through the online Bible study that I had, um, women started diving into their own faith. And through that, there were actually a handful of women who gave their life to Christ. As uh, Pastor Bob noted a few weeks ago, God has chosen us to preach the gospel. We are his plan. There's no backup strategy. But as we'll explore today, there is a real adversary to God. In fact, the Hebrew word Satan literally means adversary. And when we refer to Satan, the Hebrew would be Ahasatan, the adversary. It's a title, not a name, something like the attorney general. We should not be surprised that where God has a plan, as he does in sharing the gospel, that the adversary will oppose it. When we share the gospel as God intended in his plan, we will face spiritual opposition. And so point one is this, kingdoms collide in evangelism. The kingdom of God is sometimes viewed as a coming kingdom. Now, that's true in a sense, a day is coming that there will be the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. But in another sense, the kingdom of God is actually something here and now. Jesus taught, pardon me, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Or he said the kingdom of God has come upon you. We see this in Luke chapter 17 when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them and he said this, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And the Greek preposition there, entos, means among you. Sometimes it's translated within you, but it is within you in the sense that it's happening right now here in your midst. The kingdom of God was not only a coming kingdom, It was an advancing kingdom. And the Bible presents all of this, that we are in a conflict. We are part of a conflict. And God has called us to play a role in that conflict. Now, in order for there to be a conflict, 
that has to mean that the enemy, our spiritual enemy, has some kind of influence in this present age. Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. But now look at 2 Corinthians 4.4 with me, and Paul says this there. In their case, the God of this world, that would be Satan, God, little g, obviously, has blinded their minds, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, what does it mean that Satan is called the God of this world? And how is he able to do something like that, blinding the minds of people? Well, Satan can influence uh, thinking. He has no power. He's limited by what God will permit. He's a created being, obviously. But he is able to influence philosophies, ideals in a culture, uh, ways of thinking that deceive people from God's truth. And when the gospel message opposes the cultural philosophies that are prevailing, it can cause an angry response. It's kind of like how uh, a warm front can meet a cold front and the outcome can be a hurricane. Now, sharing the gospel has always caused some negative reactions, but we cannot let that be a reason why we don't follow through with the plan that God has given for us. Jesus said, no one takes a lamp and lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. A lamp is meant to provide illumination. So we're involved in a very real conflict. It says in 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is described as the source of sin from the very beginning of, uh, of human creation. And Jesus not only came to destroy the works of the devil, he's given his followers, all of us here today, um, he's given us followers the same mandate. This is from Luke chapter uh, 10 at verse 19. Jesus said this, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, is this conflict something unique to our time? Well, of course not. It's been going on since the very beginning. As the apostle Paul went around and shared the gospel, it was very common that he met two responses. One group of people were coming to faith in Christ and starting churches, and another group was rioting, in some cases, even trying to kill him. So these bad reactions should not surprise us. I'm going to take the example in particular today of the apostle Peter. Now, Peter was kind of a leader among the apostles. He walked with Jesus for almost all of Jesus's earthly ministry. He witnessed the incredible teaching. He saw the miracles. He, he had all these things kind of in his background. But the night that it looked like everything was getting unraveled, that same Peter stood by a fire to warm himself. A young woman asked him, you know, are you one of them? And, and Peter vehemently denied three times even knowing Jesus. Now what happened in that moment? Peter was paralyzed by fear. 
The Bible teaches that the fear of man is a snare. That fear comes from this collision of two kingdoms. We want to maybe reframe our thinking to see what this looks like. Now, what does that fear sound like when we hear it? It might sound like this. We don't know the Bible well enough. We won't have answers to questions. You know, what's the right thing to say? Or I'll look foolish. Or this, we're hypocrites because we're not good enough. Or I've failed God. I'll look weird. I might lose my friends and my family. Or even this, I've tried it and it doesn't work. The reality of that spiritual warfare is really captured in Ephesians chapter six, beginning at verse 10. And the context here is putting on the armor of God. I wish we had time to go through that. There's such riches in it. But Paul says this, beginning at verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Not to pose for a photo. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word for schemes there means plans, strategies. He's actually devising strategies to discourage the sharing of the gospel. And then Paul goes on, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. And then he lists what Bible scholars think is kind of a hierarchy of demonic powers. First thing that's really critical to note here is that this is not a fight with people. Our wrestling is not flesh and blood. The enemy is not that difficult person in front of you saying things that make you crazy. The wrestling is against the spiritual forces behind that. Again, it's the collision of kingdoms. Point two, there is a real adversary who opposes sharing the gospel. And that might seem obvious from point one, but I want to drill on it a little more. You know, um, we don't speak much about, uh, about the devil or demonic forces uh, in the church today. I mean, it's, sometimes it's considered kind of a weird topic. I've over the years had friends who were highly educated and we stop and we talk and they'll say in private, well, do you actually, I know you're a Christian, but do you actually believe in the devil? Like, you know, the horns and the pitchfork and all that. And I'll say, no, I, I don't believe in silly stereotypes. But I do believe that God once created an immensely beautiful and powerful being who rebelled against God because of his pride. And that God has judged him. Jesus said, I, I saw him fall like heaven, from heaven like lightning. And I believe in that because there's clearly evil in the world. C.S. Lewis in his great classic, The Screwtape Letters, said this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. Okay, so let's avoid both of those. and Let's return to Peter because this is going to give us a sense, I think, of how this dynamic works. Um, I'm going now to Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 31, and I'm using the Amplified Bible here because the Amplified Bible captures the sense, the, 
uh, the tense in the Greek of what's happening. Most Bibles don't go into this much detail. So the verses I have, they start with this. Jesus now is in the upper room with the disciples. This is the last, uh, you know, this is the night of his betrayal. And there are various conversations going on. And Jesus turns to Peter. Now, the first thing he says to Peter, it should have like two exclamation points. He says, Peter, Peter, listen. It's like he's talking to somebody with, you know, attention deficit. And the fact that he repeats his name twice is added emphasis. Then what happens, though, is the Greek tense actually changes. And Jesus says this, after he goes, Peter, Peter, kind of like, listen up here. He then turns and says to all the disciples there, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you, to have you like grain. And then he turns back to Peter. And now individually to Peter, he says, but Peter, I've prayed especially for you. And basically his prayer for Peter was, Peter, when you're turned around, when you get past this, strengthen your brothers. How encouraging. It was not if you get past it. It was when you get past it. Now, the, the, if, if you dig deeper into the text, it's really very interesting. It's like Satano, Satan has intensely asked for you. He's, he's pleading to get you out of God's care to test you, to try to destroy you. It's kind of like the picture of, you know, an annoying kid in the backseat on a five-hour car ride asking every 10 minutes, are we there yet? Are we there yet? It just keeps going on. It, it doesn't stop. Now stop for a minute and think about this. Does it seem strange in a way that our all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient God who, who could squash Satan like a little bug, that he lets this whole thing go on. I, I, in a way, it kind of does. We're used to, you know, good fighting evil, and, you know, I like seeing Chuck Norris line up against a couple bad guys. I just go, watch this. This won't take too long for him. But that's not how it works in this world. God is or, has ordained that we be involved in this battle and this collision of kingdoms. He's placed us as believers to engage in that struggle and he accomplishes something in us through it. This is a difficult concept maybe to really take in, but this is undisputable from the Bible. There is value to us in the struggle. Let that sink in when you're wrestling with things. Now, by tradition, Peter was, he's described as a large man. He was tough. He was a natural-born leader. And when Jesus warned all the disciples in the upper room what was coming that night, and he said, you're, you're all going to be tested, tested and scattered because of me, Peter replied and said, even if everyone else denies you, I never will. Do you think he meant that when he said it? I think he did. I, I think he was convinced that that was the case. But what was on full display when he said that? His, tell me the word. Pride, exactly, his pride. You know, the Bible says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And so there was Peter's point of testing when he declared it. Now, what was it that happened from that point that ended up in that denial standing around that fire? I think everything that he had hoped for was just smashing apart, you know, like uh, something just getting wrecked. His master, Jesus, could handle any situation. He had the perfect answer every time for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He healed the sick. He raised people from the dead. There was nothing he couldn't handle. But this night, something was different. Jesus was arrested. He was being beaten and mocked. And he was very possibly on his way to death. Nothing was turning out the way that he anticipated. Peter was fearful because he was discouraged. It's not working the way it should. Now pull that word apart. Discourage. To be discouraged is literally to lose courage. See, fear and anxiety when things are not going right or we can't control how it goes or all that will, will cause us to lose courage and maybe be a reason that we do not share the gospel with others. At times, if we're going to be honest, there may be a few people who have not felt this, but I think many of us can relate. Um, there, there are those times that we just haven't lived the way we should. How can I share the gospel? You know, you may have a part of your life. You may have a room that's off limits to God. I'll go to church and I'll do these things. But I don't want him messing in these things. You know, there, there, were, there were struggles that go on in us. Now, Peter would come to understand this much better later in his life. In 1 Peter 5.8, he said this. Be sober-minded and watchful. He's kind of saying, almost be like a sentry. Imagine you're in a battle and there's a hostile force out there and you have to be watching. Why do we have to be watching? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And there's another reminder, who's our adversary? Satan is our adversary. It's not people. Our response to people who are lost should always be compassion. Now, how does a lion hunt? A lion doesn't go after the biggest, strongest animal in the middle of a pack. When a lion is hunting, it looks for the sick animal. It looks for the small one that strays from the pack. A lion goes after the most vulnerable prey because it doesn't want to have to do a lot of work. That perhaps becomes like us. When we reach those low points, we have that discouragement. We have that kind of anxiety. We're more vulnerable to these attacks. But Peter's story, thanks be to God, does not end in failure. Jesus had prayed for Peter. And he didn't say, if you're turned around. He prayed and said to Peter, when you are turned around. Because Jesus was interceding already. How many of you would like Jesus to be interceding for you? Just curious. Anybody? Show a hand. Well, guess what? He is. Hebrews 7.25 says this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives 
to make intercession for them. Jesus is making intercession for every one of his followers now from heaven. And that didn't start then. Jesus was doing that even, you know, uh, 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 Brendan pointed out last week, in John chapter 17, the priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, you know, Jesus said in that, I don't pray for these alone, the people there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who would that be? All of us. And it's ongoing because God intends it that there will be people who will come to believe through our sharing that word. It's, it's a cycle of all of this life. Now, back to Peter for a moment. Jesus tailored his ministry to Peter to what Peter was going through. Uh, Peter would soon learn what the Bible says, that perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus appeared to him and strengthened to him. The most detailed account of it is in John's Gospel, chapter 21, where Peter's still kind of discouraged. He says, eh, I'm going fishing. Kind of like I'm going back to the old stuff while we try to figure this out. And Jesus appears to him by the seashore and uh, they catch all these fish and everything. And as they're sitting at the fire, Jesus asks him, not always with the same word, by the way, asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Now Peter's getting a little distraught. You're asking me three times, yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. This encounter with Jesus in John's gospel was a foundation of love that, that the Lord was building. And the natural outcome of that restored love relationship, of Peter's love for God, of understanding God's love for him and forgiveness, the natural outcome of that was to tell others, Peter, if that's true, then feed my sheep. Point three, God will empower us to share the gospel. The foundation of love was critical for Peter. He needed to know he was really forgiven, he was loved by God, but then something else happened. In Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost came. The Holy Spirit fell on the church. And Acts two records how Peter goes into Jerusalem and on the streets he preaches fearlessly. And that day alone, there were many afterward in the days to follow, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Peter and John are arrested. They're dragged before the Sanhedrin. This is the same Sanhedrin that had put Jesus to death. And now when, you know, the, the, this guy who was kind of timid around the fire is now suddenly fearless. He's told, don't preach any longer in this name. Whether it's right to obey God or man, you decide as for us we're going to obey God. In other words, there's no way to stop us from sharing the gospel. You want to stop us, you'll have to kill us. If we're honest again, we can relate to the internal struggle and we can relate to that condemnation. 
but there's an empowering of God to come. The first part is we want to reject this condemnation. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, Satan is cast out of heaven. And those in heaven are celebrating this. And they say, the one who condemned them, the church, the believers, who condemned them day and night is cast down. And this is a thing I think we really want to focus on as believers. The devil's strategy is condemnation. God's strategy is conviction. What's the difference? I would say the difference is in the result of what happens. The net result of condemnation is to push us further away from God. Who are you to share? Look what you're doing. You're unfit for this reason and that reason. The net outcome of conviction is the understanding of the love of God that passes understanding that in our failure, God's drawing us closer to him to let us know his forgiveness and his love. And when we respond instead to that voice of condemnation and we start with, oh, you know, I'm not worthy for this kind of thing, we're actually listening to the strategies of the enemy. What can we do when we have that struggle with our failures and inadequacies? Nothing. Nothing that is in our own strength. But when we get out of the way and we let the Holy Spirit work in us and through us, everything changes. Now, it may look sometimes like the pastors up here have always had things figured out. We really don't get people's fears or anxieties or struggles. I struggled intensely in the beginning of my walk with Christ. The first couple years, um, it, it was so difficult. I mean, I was wondering, is it possible to even live a Christian life? I had lived enough years in the world, those patterns, that kind of thinking was very strong. And I found myself constantly falling on my face. I was going to look for people, men with white hair. I had hair then and it was brown. And I would take them out to lunch and I'd say, like, can you let me in on it? Like, is there a secret handshake? Is there like a, a secret sauce or something? How do you do this? How do you live a godly life? And it wasn't long after that I lost the courage of my conviction even to share the gospel with others. Um, I really had that burden of being a hypocrite. I remember one time reading, you know, the Bible says, I will make the crooked ways straight. And I thought, that's a great encouragement, but how could that happen? There's so many of them, and they're so crooked. It, it was really almost despairing. And then one day I was reading Psalm 37, beginning at verse four, and I read these verses. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And I'm reading this and it struck me, I've been trying to do this on my own. It says, he will do it. I almost kind of like looked upward and I said, I don't have to figure this out anymore. You said you're gonna do it. That's great. The problem is yours now. You better figure this out because I can't do it anymore. I'm just gonna commit my way to you. 
This is almost like it was an audible sigh from heaven, like, finally, okay, get out of the way now. That if, if, when we feel powerless in our lives at times too, it may be because we are not submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're not, exercise, we're not living in a way where people see the fruit of the Holy Spirit or the, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our life as, as God has given. What can you do? Pray and ask God to strengthen you in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Luke 11, he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That day, it felt to me like there was a roller coaster and the commitment I had to make was to get inside a cart. I, I couldn't see anything in the roller coaster ahead, but I had to commit my way to God. I had to get in that cart. The bark was going to lock me down. And then afterward, I knew I was, you, you, you're safe once you're in that cart. Generally, you are. If you're not, you have a good lawsuit. But you're, you're, you're in that cart and then the ride comes. If I had known all the loops and drops and things that were coming, I might not have been uh, so quick to say, yeah, I, I want to get in this cart. But what, what we do find is this, and I found it, and many of you have found it, I've heard many of your testimonies. Once you're in and you're committed to God, he gives you the strength to deal with the, the loops and the drops that come in life. I'd like to end by sharing a story with you and it's a bit of a strange story, but it, um, I'm going to share it. And it happened just the way um, I'm going to tell you. So I was going through a kind of a tough time with this. I had already said, you know, okay, Lord, you have to figure this out. There was a week or so, it was just particularly bad. I just seemed like I'm messing up everywhere. Um, I was in court on a case and there were a dozen lawyers and we were in the, lawyer, the judge's chambers and one of the lawyers in the room starts telling an off-color joke. And another lawyer in the room with whom I had been sharing the gospel says, oh, wait, don't do it. This is Holy Joe now. You can't talk like that in front of him. And 12 sets of eyes, including the judge's eyes, turn and look at me. Now, I'm still relatively new in the profession. I'm struggling with imposter syndrome. And I look around the room, I just said, no, I'm still a regular guy, it's okay, go ahead, you know, oh, that's, that's, that's all fine. It was that kind of week, I just couldn't get out of my own way. And that Sunday, I was supposed to preach, uh, I was speaking to church, a friend of mine was the pastor. And so uh, I went through that week just hearing that voice of condemnation, who are you to share what, you know? Um, the night before, I had no idea what I was going to say. So I decided I would get up at five in the morning, start with coffee because caffeine is necessary for the anointing, we all know that. And I was down in the kitchen at 5 a.m. and all I could think was, I can't go there. There's nothing I have to say to anybody. I am like the worst person to be there. I had just made up my mind that I was going to call my friend as soon as it got a little later and I was going to say, cancel it. You don't want me coming. I'm the wrong person. 
And right after I was reaching that decision, I heard this at my front door. Just like that. It's 5.30 in the morning. I got up, walked toward the door, opened it slowly, looked, and there I saw nothing. I looked left, I looked right, closed the door, went back to the kitchen to resume my pity party, and as I was sitting down, I thought, no, I heard something, I know I heard something. Went back to the door, opened it, nothing, nothing, and then I looked down, and there on the ground, there were two small birds. They had flown into the door, obviously. They were tiny, they were like this big. I still vividly remember what they looked like. They were this bright green, and they had beautiful colors, like highlights of red and orange and all that. And I'm looking down at them, and one of them is kind of stirring, shaking its head a little bit, jumps to its feet, hops over to the other one. I'm watching this just transfixed. The other one lay very still, and in time I realized the other one had died. So I went out, I picked up the other one and placed it by a tree. The other bird stayed with it and went back inside and I thought, boy, that was really strange. Two birds, one for, wait, I read something like that in the Bible not long ago. It was Matthew about two birds. And so I got my Bible out, I hunted around, you know, I didn't know it as well as I know it now. And I came to um, Matthew chapter 10. And these were the words that I saw there, beginning at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. In other words, don't fear people. But fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God. Then this are not two sparrows. And the Greek word for sparrow there I found out later, it's like a tiny bird to make the point. Are not two tiny birds sold for a, a copper coin or a penny, a, you know, the lowest denomination. And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. And yes, some of it make it a little easier for him. The very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then I saw these words, and they jumped off the page at me. So, everyone who confesses or acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I kind of knew the verses about a bird doesn't fall to the ground without his notice. And I'd always thought of those more generally as, oh, God's aware of all these little details. But I had never seen them in the actual context that had to do with the fear of man and not being willing to acknowledge Jesus before others. I got down on my knees in that kitchen and I don't know how to describe it except to say, 
I just had a sense of the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And it was deep, it was a kind of profound thing that God didn't want me in this condemnation, but was, was forgiving me. The same way, you know, he had forgiven Peter in that moment, the same way he's forgiven saints throughout all the history of the church. And when I felt that love of God, something kind of pivoted in my heart that day. It wasn't that I wanted to say, oh, I'm going to be good, I can do it, I'm just going to get out there. It became more of a sense of a God who loves me this way. The Bible strains to find ways to describe the love of God. It tells us we can't even get the dimensions, the height, the depth. Knowing how much God loved me and that I was forgiven, I didn't want to disappoint my father because I had a sense of his loving me and loving him. And rather than a performance thing, it was a relational thing of not wanting, as I said, to disappoint my father. And something sort of pivoted inside of me. And I just said in prayer, Father, I don't want to deny you before men. Help me by your Holy Spirit. Give me that kind of conviction and all that. Now, I don't want to say it was great after that. There was never an issue. But there was something different that happened that day. When I was with people and I had those conversations, I was no longer going to back off. I was not going to be ashamed of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I ended up going to the church that morning and I said to them, I almost canceled. And I told them exactly why and I told them what happened that morning. And then I said, I've been ashamed to acknowledge Jesus. I don't want that anymore. I know God loves me, I know I'm forgiven from it. I want it to be different. And the presence of God was very powerful that morning. You see, the world has been transformed by forgiven people. People who failed and were turned around. Just as Peter did in the beginning and was turned around by the love of God and then empowered by the Holy Spirit. The love of God releases that power in our lives. That's why one of the reasons Romans says, don't you know, O oh man, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the guilt. It's the goodness of God and coming face to face with that even while we're in our sin and struggles. I think the way to end this, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. Um, I'd like to end this in prayer. It just seems like the right way to do it. And I'm going to ask everyone to just take a moment to bow your head and close your eyes. And that's important. Don't, don't be looking around or distracted. Um, sometimes there are solemn moments where God touches something in us. So everyone, please, head, heads down, eyes closed. I'm just going to ask, if this is something you feel you've struggled with, some kind of condemnation, a sense maybe you haven't measured up, and that's gotten in the way of sharing the gospel. I'd like to pray for you. Uh, just if you would raise your hand. Okay, yes. Okay. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
that you are a God whose love and mercy is so profound and so deep. Thank you for the way you minister to our hearts and our souls. In our failures, you tell us if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, you told us that we have authority over the strategies of the enemy. So right now, Father, we're just going to believe that in faith. And uh, we ask now, Father, just for that. We, we want to have that authority over those strategies that we would not walk in guilt or condemnation, but that we would have a desire to make you known, to let others know the incredible goodness of God that we have found in our lives. Father, I pray for everyone here for just a new strengthening in their inner man. I pray, Father, for uh, a, a greater ability to make your love known, which happens through the gospel. And Father, we ask for all these things in the matchless and mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You know, these are sometimes difficult issues. If any of you would like to meet, go out for coffee and just talk through anything or pray together, please reach out to me through the church. And there's a prayer team will be here this morning. Maybe you're here and you've never committed your life to Christ and you'd like to do that. You'd like to take the first step. Come forward. There'll be people here to pray with you. I'd encourage you as well. Stop by Info Central if you haven't. Get those tracks and the kind of the shorthand verses to use when you share the gospel. And just go in the love of God. Just feel his pleasure because we're part of a collision of kingdoms. And our God is using us for his purposes. Thanks, Highlands. Go with the Lord.